This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Dave Green to the program. Dave, how are you? I'm Bob. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Dave. You're Bob. I'm confused. I'm fine. Thank you kindly for asking. I know uh, Dave Green probably doesn't fancy himself a historian, but I, I, I like to talk to him on the on the radio, and I know he, he's interested in a couple of the topics we're going to bring up today, so I thought it'd be good to run it by you, Dave, you know, run, run it by you. Well, you did send me some information here. I'm looking at the email, as a matter of fact, and one of the topics you would like to talk about uh, that will also appear in one of your upcoming columns? Well, yeah, all of these have been by now columns in my focus on history in the Daily Gazette. All right. One of them deals with a, a pioneer woman, but this needs to be updated considerably. Yes, well, not pioneer in, in terms of uh, crossing the country in a Conestoga wagon, but she was a pioneer female broadcaster. And you and I were broadcasters for a long time. Hardly pioneers, but uh, we, we did it over a number of years. I guess we're still doing it now, in fact. So no so a, a founding, uh, you say a founding father of sorts here. Yes, her founding mom, founding mother, I, uh, her, it's her uh, credit. Uh, pioneer woman broadcasting executive became town historian in Charleston, Montgomery County, and spearheaded restoration of an 18th century church uh, through the Town Historical Society, which I believe she may even have founded, the Historical Society, uh, to restore uh, the, the church. So this woman's name is Edith Messerand. I don't know if you ever heard it, but she was you know, fairly well-known in this area after she moved up to Charleston. And I know uh, you've been to that part of uh, Montgomery County. It's really, really beautiful up there, country stuff, kind of stuff you like a lot. Nice place, Bob. It is. But uh, Edith Messerand was born in Philadelphia, 1908. And she was, uh, near as I could tell, looking at her, her bio and her family, they were sort of shabby, chic or genteel poor. I mean, these are they're folks that maybe had money. They at had one all time. those titles back then, Bob. I think they did. All right, um, but she always had to work for a living, and she was doing something. And honestly, I can't remember what it was when she met some guy at a party in the 1920s who said, "Why don't you come work for us? We've got this thing going called radio." So in 1926, it could be she, big. It could be big. You and I have said that to each other. So in, in 1926, Edith Messeran went to work in the press office of the National Broadcasting Company in New York City, I presume trying to generate newspapers. All right, now wait a minute. I'm following the ball here. Born in okay. Philadelphia, moved yep. to New York, mm-hmm. gets into broadcasting, 1908. No, no, she was born in uh, no, 1908, born, all right, okay. broadcasting all right. 1926. 26, in, right. in 1931... She was on the air as the musical clock girl at the Hearst radio station in New York City. Honestly, I didn't write it down in the script. It was one of those storied call letters down there. I think it was might have been WMCA or might have been WINS. But what she used to do, as we did in radio ourselves over the years, she would get on and uh, tell the time, and I think she also did the weather. You, the- you mean to tell me that at the time, in the early 30s, the radio station could afford... To a pay to pay someone to be the musical clock girl. 
Well, I don't imagine they paid too much, but they did pay. And I think it was that's generally true of many businesses that developed. Like even when you and I started, there were more people in radio than there are today, right? right. And back then, I think there were a lot of people, you know, engineers and announcers and so on and so forth. So after this stint as the musical clock girl, Edith Messerand, and this was really her great distinction, went on to become assistant news director of New York's WOR, you know, big Bow Wow radio station still. Uh, she took that job in 1937. And during World War II, she and the station news director uh, pioneered the station's news department, the WOR news department. Ultimately, uh, the news director was either drafted or enlisted, so it fell to Edith, to Edith Messerand, to run the news department. She produced some of the first radio documentaries ever. And after the war, she produced television programs at WOR and became uh, quite well-known in, in New York City. I think on the air, she was known as Edie Messerand as opposed to Edith. So so if we were a New York Cityite, we would know the name well. We, we might. You know, if you're a New York Cityite of a, of a certain age, let's say. All right. And in 1951, Edith was one of the founders of American Women in Radio and Television. I'm already thinking glass ceiling here, Bob. <laughs> that could be. All right. Because at some point... She retired from New York City broadcasting. Um, it was in the 1950s. I honestly didn't find maybe the exact year. And with her companion is a woman named Jane Barton, who now enters the story, Jane Barton. Jane and Edith retired in a sense, or, or Edith retired, because Jane uh, still had a full-time job in Albany. Um, Edith and Jane started to live, or they moved up to Montgomery County, to Charleston, and they lived on Esperance Road. It's one of those confusing things. Uh, you look in the past records, they sometimes, you know, her mailing address was Esperance, but she actually lived in Charleston. And what they bought there wasn't just a house, they bought a Christmas tree farm, a Christmas tree farm, and they, they farmed it. For there, some there's time. a pattern here, Bob, that exists to, the, to this very day. People yes. from downstate come upstate and who am I? I'm thinking of the fabulous Beekman boys. Yeah, it's like the fabulous Beekman All boys. All right, there you but, go. You know, earlier. So they have the uh, the windy. It was called Windy Hill. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, that sounds fact, familiar. It, yeah, Windy Hill Farm. In fact, I saw it not too long ago. I did a speaking engagement out in Charleston, and one of Edith's and Jane's friends uh, took Audrey and me down to where the farm is, and it's still there. It's not uh, since they've passed on. Uh, nobody's bought it or you know it's still their heirs that that own it it's still in pretty good shape and it's um it's right there on um, on Esperance Road and uh Edith Messeran didn't like retire retire I mean she wasn't that that old in the 1950s she started an advertising agency one of her clients being Marianne Kripsack who is an Amsterdam native she became lieutenant governor had an unsuccessful run for for governor um, so the two of them are living up uh, on um, Esperance Road in the town of Charleston. A little bit more on her companion, Jane Barton. She was born Jane Greenberg in New York City in 1918, and her career was as a journalist and public relations person. She changed her name in 1939, as many people uh, did then, a la Kirk Douglas, let's say, while working in media in New York City. 
When the war broke out, Jane Barton became an officer in the Waves, the women accepted for volunteer emergency service, the women's branch of the U.S. Navy in World War II. After the war, she joined the Naval Reserves, she trained new recruits and did public relations and retired as a commander in the Waves. Uh, from 1948 so, to 19... So am I, to, am I to say here, Bob, that at this point we are talking about two ladies who, as we often say, were way ahead of their time? They, they certainly they, they were. They seem to be. Yes. Yeah. Um, and from 1948 to 1973, Jane Barton worked for the state, state of New York, as she was the radio, television, motion picture bureau director of the New York State Department of Commerce. And what she did was produce radio and television programs and did publicity for the state. It's kind of, it wasn't called that then, but it's kind of like I Love New York. You know what I mean? And then, but it did she, have the long New York State title to go with it. That's right. Yeah. So she did that for a good long time and retired from her state job in 1973. And, you know, and then by then she and um, Edith were living at Windy Hill Farm. But Barton wasn't done working either. She wrote for area newspapers, in particular, I think the old Schenectady Union Star. But I remember Jane probably more than Edith because Jane was upstate New York correspondent for many years for Variety, the show business newspaper. Oh, and all right. Yeah, occasionally she would stop by WGY when you and I were there, at, you know, following one story or another for Variety. I don't know exactly what, but I, I remember meeting her. You know, she'd come by the, the station. And both Jane Barton and Edith Messeran became active in their community, their adopted home of, of Charleston in Montgomery County. And they used to have parties, and I've talked to several folks in the media, in fact, some after the column ran, who remembered being invited to parties uh, at the Windy Hill Farm with uh, Messerand and, and Barton. In particular, um, Diane Smith, uh, Lloyd Smith's widow, uh, Lloyd, the longtime morning host in WCSS in Amsterdam, I have this, she sent me on an email of a picture of Lloyd Smith and Boom Boom Brannigan attending a party at Windy Hill Farm. With, with each I, sentence, Bob, we're getting closer and closer to home, of sorts. We are. Yeah. We are. We're finally getting yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And I, I'm told that, for example, Tracy Egan used to go there. Uh, I heard from uh, Joanne DeVoe, who's a very active public relations woman. She says she remembers one time that, the, that Barton and Messerand got people llamas to ride with, at the party <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and so forth. So they were very active socially. Jane Barton served on the planning board in the town of Charleston. Wait, wait, give, me, give me the time frame here, Bob. What's the time? Where, where are we? We're talking now the 60s, probably, and into the 70s. All right. And, even, you know, even into the, the 80s. And um, the women did not die until the 90s and early in this century, but that comes in a moment. But, back, but I'm writing this history column about Montgomery County, and here's the connection to Montgomery County history. In the 1970s, Edith Messeran became town historian of uh, Charleston, and she was founding chairman of the Charleston Historical Society in the late 1970s. That still exists. In fact, when I said I had a gig up in Charleston, I spoke to a meeting of the Charleston Historical Society. And the uh, project that they worked on uh, that Edith was most associated with was preserving the town's First Baptist Church. 
I guess she was, as were many people in Charleston, very disturbed that this historic building, it was a church that had been built in 1793 when George Washington was president. It was, it's on Poland Road, P-O-L-I-N, in Charleston. It has, was going to rack and ruin. I mean, the, the church uh, lost, you know, didn't, it was no longer a church. They didn't have enough members to have a church. So it was just sitting there vacant and was badly vandalized. Thieves stole the church bell and they stole a pulpit chair, and it just awful. It was an eyesore. So one of uh, Edith's goals in starting the Charleston Historical Society was to restore the church. So the Historical Society bought the church uh, from the American Baptist Convention for $1,500 in 1978, and volunteers began the hard job of renovating the church. They got support from a descendant of the original pastor, a man named Reverend Elijah Herrick. His descendant, Harold Herrick of New Jersey, came up to Charleston and said, you folks go, go restore this church. It's a, it's a great idea, I'm, I'm behind you. And it took an estimated 2,100 hours of work, primarily done by 10 volunteers, to make the church ready for a public dedication. And as you say, it gets closer and closer to our time, in June of 1983. And when it was dedicated, it was no longer a church, the building became the home of the Charleston Historical Society. I saw clips of the you know coverage of the dedication ceremony. 200 people attended, and a name well known to you and me was MC, Mr. Jack Arnicky of uh, WRGB and WGY. And Jack said, according to a newspaper account, at last... We seem to be entering an age of progress with thoughtful renovation instead of the recent age of tearing down and building something new. I know you've often said to me that you thought uh, Jack Arnicky was like a real person on television. One of the, one of the uh, better broadcasters to have ever passed through the Capital Region, Bob. Indeed. Yeah. Also at this dedication was then-Assemblyman, now Congressman, Paul Tonko, who said you were making history by preserving history. And they have done a good job, and they've kept at it since 1983. In fact, one interesting story, in 1986, I said how the the church bell was stolen and something called the pulpit chair. Well, in 1986, an unknown someone returned the pulpit chair to Miserand and uh, Barton's home, just dropped it off with a note that was sort of vague as to who it was that had done that. So they got the pulpit chair back. The former church was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1994. Edith Messeran died in 1997, and her calling hours were held at the restored 18th century building that she had so much to do with restoring, and Jane Barton uh, died in 2005. So your, your, your story about the bell reminds me of Bob Newhart's routine. Uh, when Which he is? was the submarine captain, he, he's okay. talking about in the routine how... He, his, the door to his office was stolen. I would like that returned as well, please. The thing yeah. was, I think it was a submarine with screen doors. There was some <laughs> kind of connection in there. It's really interesting when you when you, you get so deeply involved with someone's history, how you can be walking down the street, this human being is coming at you and passes you, and you may say hi, you may not say hello, maybe one of those days, but if you did stop and talk long enough, you would realize the long connection we all have somewhere. Isn't that true? Yes. And um, 
to right. think the way that, you describe these ladies, if you were to pass them or if you were had to have talked to them at the time, they probably would not go into this long history of theirs. But uh-huh. it really is. I mean, there there are huge pieces of information missing in everyone's life. But the trouble is getting somebody to listen to it. Yep. Yeah. I didn't put it in the story, but the one time I remember being with both Edith Messerand and Jane Barton was sometime probably back in the 80s or maybe, well, probably was in the 80s. Uh, they had a meeting of this organization that she founded or was one of the founders of American Women in Radio and Television. And the local chapter of that was giving, I think, both of them an award. And my uh, boss at the College of St. Rose then, uh, Professor Mary Alice Mulgard, was maybe she was president of the local chapter and she had invited me. I remember it was a brunch on a Sunday and uh, you know, had a good time chatting uh, with both uh, Jane and Edith. Can't remember anything we said, but <laughs> it was a nice time. I do remember there was a, l- a little bit of uh, alcoholic beverages involved too, yeah, yeah. even though it was Sunday morning was a brunch day. <laughs> a little, little champagne. I understand. Well, all right. At that point, let's let's. Try Turn the corner. All right. The 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 other story you have in mind. Uh, we were talking about this in one of the previous podcasts a few weeks ago. We are talking about uh, a stretch of road that runs all the way from Amster, the city of Amsterdam, clear into the state of Maine, or proposed road anyway. It was proposed. Uh, this is a you know another recent focus on history column. Super highway once proposed between Amsterdam and Maine. I do want to credit um, Dan Weaver and Sam Zerlo of WCSS. Apparently, somebody had brought this to Sam's attention. Uh, Sam, a, a reporter for the Gazette, uh, back in the back in the day, as they say, uh, probably covered this story. But uh, you know, it's like anything. Maybe it had faded from his memory. But uh, somebody brought it up to him. Do you remember when they did this? And Dan Weaver kind of took it forward and did some research, and I picked up the ball and carried it farther to find out, you know, a fair amount about uh, this idea, which obviously never happened. The superhighway. Well, was this Amsterdam ever given? Was this ever given any serious consideration? Oh, I think so. Really? In fact, I begin the story by saying, for a time, serious thought was given to the idea of making Amsterdam the western end of a 400-mile four-lane highway informally called Interstate 92, or it was often referred to as the East-West Highway. Two successive Amsterdam mayors traveled to New England to support the project, which was never built. The idea was to open up uh, not so much Amsterdam, although Amsterdam was seen as a beneficiary of, of part of this, but the idea was to open up northern sections of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine to economic development. To this day, you know, it's a little hard to get up there. You know, they, there are north-south highways to get there, but they aren't connected in an east-west way. The road's eastern end would have been at Callis, Maine, on the Canadian border. So one presumes, and I think today the main turnpike or whatever it's called, uh, may, I don't know if it ends in Callis, but there is this link between American and Canadian highways in Maine. But the idea of this was to have that link be in Callis and connected to uh, Amsterdam uh, to the west. Um, Callis, Maine is spelled like the French city Calais, but it, it's it's pronounced uh, Callis. The in, in researching the piece, you know, getting newspaper clippings, the I, I found one man who really, this was his brainchild. He was a a gentleman named W. Bartlett Cram, 
like they want to cram it down your throat, Dave. Mm, I got uh, it. W. Bartlett Cram, who was described in the different press clippings as an industrial consultant from Bangor, Maine. I guess he surveyed Bangor, Maine, which was probably getting kind of depressed in the uh, in the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, and he said, you know, what we really need is a new highway. We got to get some way to get at New York City and in particular the Middle West. And according to Cram, uh, the idea of having the road as it, with its western end in Amsterdam would have given northern New Englanders a way to increase trade not only with New York City, but also with the Middle West, because Amsterdam is a little bit on the way toward uh, the Midwest on the throughway. So he thought that was the best place to put the end of the road in the West. And he also picked Amsterdam on the basis of topography. And I'm just going on his word. I don't know. But anyway, here's what he said. He said, if you move the road a few miles east or west from Amsterdam, you'd add significantly to the cost because of steeper grades. You know, that Amsterdam was a natural breaker or something in some of the, the steep hills. Not to worry and, about the 400 miles in between. Not to worry about those, <laughs> no. So th this is being talked about in the mid-60s. I was going to and, ask you, 60, yeah. mid-60s, you say? Yeah, well, uh, and toward the late 60s. In fact, my first date reference here is 1967. Now, I remember him well. Uh, the late Marcus Breyer, Amsterdam mayor at the time, uh, went to Portland, Maine to attend a campaign kickoff for the highway. And he said he was enthusiastic about the highway. Um, in the next year, 1968, and to make a reference to something that's happening in Amsterdam, this is about the time that the carpet business is really starting to slide because by then Bigelow Sanford, one of two big carpet mills, has moved out. And 68 happened to be the year that Mohawk Carpets stopped its heavy manufacturing. I mean, they stayed there with their offices and stuff, such, but they stopped making carpets. But in 1968, this man, Cram, comes to Amsterdam, speaks at the local TP restaurant, which I uh, have a story about that in my new book. It was a very elegant restaurant in Amsterdam's uh, East End. It's no longer open. And he, Cram, pitched the highway before a crowd of 125 business and community leaders uh, in Amsterdam. Cram said the road would have a 70-mile-per-hour speed limit. Realistically, he said, the federal government would not be able to afford this until they ended the Vietnam War. Um, and so uh, they were asking the federal government for 90% of the, of the cost. That This is in 1968. Cram speaks in Amsterdam. But later that year, there there comes some opposition to this particular route. Governor Philip Hoff of Vermont, I mean, he was in favor of such a highway, but he was totally against the Amsterdam to a callous plan. He favored a more northern route. There were environmental concerns as well. And then as the year went on, some favored a western end of the highway in Glens Falls, which would make sense because by then I think the Northway was built, not in uh, Amsterdam. On Sunday, June 8th, 1969, the relatively new mayor of Amsterdam, John Gomulka, who served a, a good long time as mayor, 1969, year after his predecessor had gone to New England, Mayor John Gomulka led a four-car caravan with Amsterdam city officials on a trip along the proposed route. There were welcoming groups in Saratoga Springs, South Glens Falls, 
Hudson Falls, Fort Edward, Fort Anne, Whitehall. They get to this four-car caravan, gets to the Vermont state line. The Vermont state police escort them to Rutland to have coffee with the Chamber of Commerce. They get to New Hampshire, another state police escort, as the group stopped at Meredith, Laconia, and other villages. Then they get to Maine. The state police in Maine escorted Mayor Gamolka and his party to dinner in Augusta, the state capital. The next day, it was lunch with highway advocate uh, Mr. Cram in Bangor. The mayor of Bangor, Ed Porter, gave Gamulka the key to his city. Then the group continued and had dinner in Callis. But listen to this. Despite the warm welcome in New England, Gamulka told the recorder, like just a few days after the 1969 caravan, he was not pleased with Amsterdam's indifference to the highway proposal. The one deplorable fact, the mayor said, was the lack of interest in the project locally. When the mayor asked local movers and shakers to join his caravan to Callis, nobody else wanted to go. It was a relatively small caravan, four cars, and it was just the city officials. For some reason, the business interests in Amsterdam had kind of lost interest in this idea. Did they ever and, put a price tag on this, Bob? Um, I didn't see one. They're probably... They're, um, you know, the ultimate question? Yeah. I, I, in fact, it probably was out there. And, I, and it was going to be a lot of money. But the point was they were going to get 90% state uh, federal aid and then 10% probably from the individual um, states. Do, do we not already have the – I'm trying to think. As you were describing this, I recently went up to Vermont. And if you go up through Rutland, as soon as you cross the state line into – on, I think it's uh, state New York State Route 73 through the Ticonderoga area, and as soon as you cross the border into Vermont, you immediately jump on what is a superhighway. And I believe, though, that's going north-south, basically. And the idea was that this one would cut... Yeah, I can't, I can't see the geographics. I, I can't see the geography of where this road actually would have gone. I mean, the, the, the layout, you know, to get well, through the mountain. Well, it would come, you know, up through, you know, from Amsterdam up, let's say, to Glens Falls, across into Vermont, maybe into Rutland, but then across Vermont, little towns. You know, it wouldn't go to Burlington, for example, that uh, road you mentioned. So they would have connected into the existing roads. Otherwise, it would have been a road oh, to yeah. connect to the north way, the north way to the... But, all right, I get the idea. So... And that was basically the end of the story. There was an effort to get Governor Nelson Rockefeller to assume leadership of the highway in 1970. January 1971, Time Magazine did a story on the East-West Highway called Road to Riches. There was a retired Marine General, Hamilton South, who had become an Albany banker and highway supporter. And in 1971, he told reporters, there will be a road there one day, but if we don't do it now, it won't be done properly. Instead, a lot of crummy small highways will be built. That would be a tragedy. Crummy. (laughs) Crummy. And the Federal Highway Administration rejected the Amsterdam to Callis plan, I believe, in 1971. Efforts were made to save the idea with the western end being Albany, Glens Falls, or Scroon Lake, but no east-west superhighway was ever built linking northern New York and northern New England. And maybe at this point, it's not considered any kind of necessity. Well, I'll be your singing clock boy, Bob, if you want. I think it's telling us we're almost out of time. Yes, I I see we are. I thank you very much for chit-chatting your way through an historian's podcast, Dave. It's, I, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. 
Once again, a piece of information, unless somebody, and keeping the attention span going, and this one certainly does. Yeah, and and, and the uh, highway, I find, or anything having to do with highways is sort of interesting to people, you know, because we we ride them. Right, it either gets us there or we need to pay some kind of tax to use it. Yeah, but that's a good question how much that would have. Cost. And also, I'm reminded, I frequently used to quote Dan Rather, you know, Americans will put up with anything except holding up traffic. That's, that's true. You know, just make sure you invite me for dinner. Thank you. Indeed. Well, we are running uh, close to the end of the Historian's Podcast. Just a, a short word about my new book, Lost Mohawk Valley. It's out there. It's available at uh, bookstores. Uh, might put in a special word for the old peddler's wagon where... Um, my book is available, 175 Church Street in Amsterdam on Route 67, uh, by the way. And who knows, maybe I'll be doing a book talk in a, a community near you. The Historian's Podcast is produced at Dave Green's East Line Studio. I'm Bob Cudmore.